Yo, what up, everybody? While the world's talking about slapping somebody, we're talking about electoral education right here on the Urban Conservative. Hey, buddy. Do you like NASCAR? Do you like a tribe called Quest? Well, you're going to love the Urban Conservative. Do you like manwich and nachos? Well, then you'd love the Urban Conservative. Do you like guns? Do you like butter? Well, you're going to love the Urban Conservative. Yo, what's good, son? You like pit bulls, say? You like solving Sudoku puzzles? Then you're going to love the Urban Conservative. Hey, buddy, if your car making a sound like this, you might want to get you some power steering fluid and check out the Urban Conservative podcast. Are you repulsed by the idea of drag queen story time at your local library, but enjoy Carol Baskin TikTok memes? Then you would enjoy the Urban Conservative. All right, bro, we live, we live, we live. Peace and love, everybody. It is Monday evening. 8 p.m. Time for the Urban Conservative. First and foremost, visit www.tuconservative.com. That is the website where you want to go get yourself a membership for the year. Joe Joe Biden inflation has got everything up, but the cost of joining the Urban Conservative is just $10 for the year. You get access to some wonderful content, behind the scenes footage, all that wonderful stuff. And you get to support a pretty cool conservative podcast. As usual, shout out to Scott and Zinger, the Two America Show. Wednesday, 7 p.m., right here on the Urban Conservative. Please don't miss an episode. Follow the Two America Show on all social media and follow us on all social media at the Urban Conservative. We really appreciate it. And uh, Ali, I gotta, I gotta say, it's been an interesting week. Uh, mm-hmm. Some events got announced out here in Suffolk County. I'm kind of excited yeah. about. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I would like to start things off by shouting out the entire Suffolk County GOP, uh, all of the local town leaders, especially here on the East End. April 27th, you don't want to miss it. We got our uh, New York Lieutenant Governor candidate, Allison Esposito, coming out. We got Ray Tierney, our Suffolk County District Attorney, coming out. And uh, we have Nick Lalota, our congressional candidate, coming out talking about Save Our State. We're going to be dealing with the crime issue here in, in the state of New York and here in Suffolk County. And uh, she's going to address her constituents, her, her future constituents here, uh, as well as for Mr. Lalota. So to RSVP for that, get in the comment section below. Space is limited. It's going to be at the VFW here in West Hampton Beach. So please, it's going to be complimentary food. You want to you wanna email team at wewinraces.com rsvp please folks that's april 27th you don't want to miss that so i'm excited about it um you know it's it's, it's going to be a real real interesting event shouts out to the whole south fork patriots group and all of the patriots groups and uh you know across long island so that's my right. so, so real quick i just gotta throw a big shout out uh to lieutenant governor mark robinson i gotta give a big up to our Cabarrus County Republican men and women's clubs. They held a great county commissioners forum. Uh, we're gonna talk a lot about uh, elections today. And one thing I just wanna, I've been saying this as I travel across the state and across my county is, even though we're in the midst of primary season, when we're done with that, right? Like when the scrimmages are over and we know who's on the team, it's time to play as a team. We've gotta move 
as a team after the primary. So shout out to everybody that's putting their name in the ring to run at whatever level uh, during the primary, run hard. And uh, when it's all said and done, get on board the team. But talking about elections, bro, I'm excited. Hey, about hey, hey bro, I, 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 before you do that, I, uh -huh. viewers uh -huh. know that, our viewers know this. We're big on an informed electorate, right? We hear, that word, we hear the word elections a lot, but the word, I feel like the word electorate is neglected a lot. So mm. now we can segue into today's mm. guest because I think this is going to be a very interesting conversation. All right, ladies and gentlemen, for the first time here on the Urban Conservative, um, good brother, solid brother, solid conservative, knowledgeable, knowledgeable is to say the least. I want to bring on for the first time to the Urban Conservative, Brother Hal Weatherman. Welcome to the show, my brother. Good, good to be here. I, I feel like I'm the the rural conservative. I'm in Forest City, North Carolina, so nice. urban meets rural here. It's great. So that farm, that's farming country out there. Oh yeah, you know we're we're in the foothills of the mountains, so you know we're kind of in route up towards Asheville, but we're still in the foothills looking up. So. Uh, but it's beautiful. It's got country. And I lived in Raleigh forever and um, Charlotte before that. And my family only moved out here last year. And we love it. We, we made a, a purpose to move out west on the western part of the state because we wanted to be out here. And no regrets. So I feel Good. like I feel like how you're one of those people that I run into across North Carolina. And it's just like, oh, I didn't expect to see how there. It's like, yeah. I always see how it's like, he just pops up, bro. It's just like, oh. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously with my, the career I've had, I've been on the road. There's no county I haven't been in. I've been in all 100 counties uh, numerous times. Uh, in our, I used to work for the Lieutenant Governor, as you know, the former Lieutenant Governor. And that first campaign for Governor or for Lieutenant Governor, we, we went to all 100 counties multiple times. We did over 300,000 miles before our, our odometer broke. And that's a true story. And then we just stopped keeping track. So wow. I, I, I have, you know, it's funny because my wife and I will be out driving somewhere completely random and, and you know, one of us have to go to the bathroom or something. We'll pull over to the gas station and it's, you know, I, I reckon I'm like, oh, I've been here before. And, uh -huh. You know, it was years ago, but I've been right here at this place. And uh, so, but I love North Carolina. I love all of it. I love the urban and the rural. And um, it's just been a great, great experience living here and working here. So let, let's go back before we jump into the the, the knee deep stuff. Uh, so the audience, because the show for us, Hal, is a lot of learning. Like we like to take people with us on a learning experience. So the folks have a little bit. I know you mentioned working for the previous lieutenant governor. Give the folks a little bit about Hal Weatherman. Where are you from? What got you involved in politics? That, that kind of deal. Uh, sure. So, I mean, I'll, I'll work backwards. Previous, I'll, uh, I'll, right now, I work for Congressman Madison Cawthorn. He's the freshman member of Congress from the, the far western part of the state, which is where I am now. Um, but prior to that, I worked uh, for former Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, was his chief of staff uh, on the government side, but also um, ran both of his campaigns for Lieutenant Governor, the, the races that we won. Uh, and then also ran the governor's race as well uh, that we lost. And uh, prior to that, uh, I worked 18 years for a member of Congress who's actually Dan's mother, um, but just with a different last name. Uh, her name is Sue Myrick. Um, she's a retired member of Congress now, but she put 18 years in. I was with her most, most all of the 18 years and was her chief of staff for most of that time. 
and ran eight of the of her nine campaigns. So my background is strong on campaign management. I've run 14 campaigns over a 27 year career, um, had never lost before until um, uh, this last race for governor and quite honestly learned more in defeat than I ever learned uh, in victory. And it was the genesis for my involvement in the nonprofit, uh, the Electoral Education Foundation that I started uh, over and above my professional career. I'm married my wife, Michelle. Um, I have three kids, um, uh, 17, almost 15, and, and my daughter who turned 12 today. And nice. uh, yeah, and uh, I have a dog and a cat and we restored a hundred year old home here in Forest City that we're done with the renovations now, but I don't wish renovating a hundred year old house on anybody. And okay. so uh, it was great, but it was a money pit. And uh, other than that, you know. All right. So how? You talked a little bit, and before we move forward on this, I think it's really cool that you said something. You said that you learned a lot more in the um, last race than you think you did in the previous races before that. Um, yeah. What what from a political angle did you learn? Because sometimes we get a lot of candidates that watch our show because we have candidates on. And so from from your perspective, what was the big takeaway from a candidate perspective, what do you say to somebody in a primary right now that's going to lose right now, whether that state Senate, House, no. local, what do you say to that person um, about a loss? Well, I, I think when I say it, you know, what I meant was there were a lot of things that happened um, in the 2020 race that I think are unique to the 2020 cycle. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. COVID, the pandemic, I mean, we were a grassroots insurgent campaign going back to Dan's first uh, when, as lieutenant governor, remember when Dan, people will forget this, but Dan was only the second Republican elected lieutenant governor since 1898. The Democrats basically had a 145 year stranglehold on the office. And we broke that and we broke it in an old fashioned way. By And we got criticized for it. I mean, I remember back a decade ago when we were campaigning in a big bus and everybody else said you should be putting your money into TV. And instead we put it into gas for a big RV with run for us, run plaster on it. And did the 300,000 plus miles that I'm talking about and went county to county to county the old fashioned way. And we won that race by 6,800 votes, which might sound like a lot, but it's out of 4.5 million ballots cast Ooh. in that election. Our race came down to 6,800 votes. And so, um, and you know, you fast forward to our, when we ran for governor and our defeat, you know, there were mandatory no gatherings inside or outside of more than 50 people. So our entire grassroots operation shut down. We're insurgent grassroots campaign with uh, no ability to basically get in front of the grassroots. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and then it just goes down from there. I, I think on a, on a more personal level, this is true for all candidates. Um, when you are up, you got more friends than you know what to do with. Your phone call gets returned. Uh, everybody wants a favor. You're on cloud nine. Boy, the day after a defeat, <laughs> ain't nobody calling you. Uh, nobody cares. And so it, it's an eye-opening experience, to be honest, of of what defeat, you know, it really starts to make you realize who are your real friends, uh, who's in it for the game, who's in it for the money, who's in it for the power, the prestige. And then, uh, you know, it's interesting after the after our defeat, the people that called me that I really resonated the most with were people who had been defeated before. And I, you wouldn't mind to, me telling this, but you know, Patrick Ballantyne is a dear friend of mine, but Patrick is, is now in private practice. But and some people will remember watching this. You know, he, he's not an old guy. He's, he, well, he's about my age, but 
he ran for governor and lost. He was the Republican nominee for governor against Easley. And he was one of the first people to reach out to me um, and talk to me and talk to me in a way that I'd never, I'd called and consoled people who had lost before, but it, I don't know, you know, when he called, it made a difference. And I, wow. I give him 100% credit because I was in a very dark place after that race. Right. And and because, you know, we put 10 years of our lives into that race. When we ran for lieutenant governor, we were running for governor back in 2012. So we put 10 years of our lives, the better part of our wealth, the better all the you know, a decade of, of time away from family and home uh, only to come up short. And um, so you learn a lot about human nature more than anything, just human nature. But that race in particular, you know, what I learned as a maybe a campaign professional or whatever, was I'm not an election expert, but I'm probably as close to one as there is in North okay. Carolina. I've run five statewide campaigns and 14 total races, state and federal in the state. And there were so many things happening in that election that I have personally had never seen before, that I did not know who to go to or how to explain it or how to respond. And so at the end of that race, I'd already decided win or lose. When this race is over, um, you know, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to do something about it for the next guy so that uh, so that they don't wake up the day after an election and realize, where do I go from here? Like like I wasn't prepared for this, you know. And so and I'm, and that is the from from my involvement. That is the genesis of the Electoral Education Foundation, which is the nonprofit that I founded. And and, and it's founded for one. So, I, you know, I won't jump ahead unless you want to talk about no, that. No, no, no. Look. Perfect segue, Hal. Ladies and gentlemen, right around the 13-minute mark, you're checking out the Urban Conservative Podcast. You are either watching us on YouTube or you're watching on Facebook or you're a member because you've spent 10 bucks for the year and you've gone over to TUConservative.com and you're watching there. Also, do remember, do remember, jump in the comments. Let us know where you're watching from. Have any questions for Hal as we go through this discussion, make sure you throw those in the comments. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe, that notification bell, so you know every time we go live. So, so Hal, you you started to talk about the genesis of the Electoral Education Foundation and what you're yeah. doing now. And and how much, this is the hardball question here, how much voter fraud, I don't, I don't know how to get this video banned for saying it, but how much voter fraud do we think took place in North Carolina? Do you think it was a widespread voter integrity issues in North Carolina? Absolutely. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I think I think there was um, it, the thing about the Electoral Education Foundation for us, our job is not to look for fraud. And that sounds counterintuitive. People okay. think, wait, you're looking for fraud. What I believe firmly is that there are vulnerabilities in our election system itself, that fraud needs those vulnerabilities to exist. So rather than try to go capture and prove fraud, all I want to do is to capture and prove that there are vulnerabilities in the system and close those vulnerabilities. Hmm. And the analogy I give is imagine I'm a white collar prosecutor and my superiors say, I want you to go out and look for money launderers. And let's just make this number up. Let's say there's a million corporations out there. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the legal standing to go through the books of a million companies to see if they're committing money laundering. But if that's my job, I will sit down at a computer like a, a, a Bloomberg business database and I will call that list down. I will call it down from a million co companies and I will say, you know what? Give me only the companies that are uh, structured as a LLC with a five man board of directors that have a sister LLC with the same five board members attached to it. And if you've got a brother LLC attached to that group with the same five board members, give me that. 
Now, what I did is I just shrunk a million companies down to a much more smaller number because there's nothing inherent about those structures I just mentioned. But if you're a white collar prosecutor looking for for vote, for um, money laundering, that structure is conducive to money laundering mm. because it's unclear organization A could move through B and move it directly into C. And it's unclear who has fiduciary control. If that analogy makes sense, then take that analogy into election integrity. And, and that's what we want to do at the Electoral Education Foundation. We want to show the vulnerable spots that are in the system itself that people who want to commit fraud will exploit to commit fraud unless you close those structures down. It's an easier bar. It's a lower bar to jump over. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need to prove fraud to convince policymakers that you've got structural flaws that could be used to commit fraud. And I think that's very important. And I'll put a partisan cap. We're a nonpartisan organization. I'll put a partisan cap on for a minute. We as conservatives need to stop um, allowing the left and the media to somehow try to silence our belief in election integrity because we are not experts on fraud and able to pinpoint fraud, 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 fraud. Mm. I don't need to be an expert on fraud to show you there are vulnerability spots in the system that could be used for that. Just like a white collar prosecutor will tell you that structure I just explained to you is absolutely a conduit for money laundering. And so if you're looking for it, look there first. That's all we're saying. And so, but do I think that there were, you know, uh, potential fraudulent activities in the 2020 election here in North Carolina? Absolutely. I'll give you one example so that you don't think I'm, you know, whatever. Um, uh, mail-in ballots traditionally uh, account for 3% of all ballots mailed um, cast in North Carolina. In 2020, we had 5.55 million people vote. In the 2020 election, mail-in ballots surged to almost 37% of all ballots cast. So you're talking you're talking about a tidal wave, an absolute tidal wave difference between the two. At the same time that mail-in balloting was happening, there were more than one left-leaning groups that were mailing in pre-populated absentee ballot request forms into the state of North Carolina. Now, that is not my theory. That is not my theory as EEF president. That is not my theory as Dan Forces. Uh, campaign manager for governor that was reported by WREL and the News and Observer both openly reported it that a George Soros funded group was mailing into the state pre-populated absentee ballot request forms state as pre-populated absentee ballot request forms are illegal the state board of elections issued what's called a numbered memo to all 100 county boards of elections saying if you are in possession of one of these pre-populated absentee ballot request forms. You are under mandate by state law to throw it away. Please do so. However, we mm-hmm. also add so that you don't disenfranchise the voter that was targeted, that you then pull out a non-pre-populated absentee ballot request form and complete the transaction with the voter. If you're asking my opinion, that is a circumvention of state election law and, and led to a massive increase of mail-in ballots. And I think it's illegal. I don't know how else to say it. Mm. The the one example that I'm giving. Sure. Ali, real quick, yeah. let, let me. I'm just curious what you think of this house. So, how much of the responsibility 
for these things taking place can we lay at the feet of an uninformed electorate or or people just being massively uneducated about our electoral process right how much of this what percentage if we could get a number out of you can we lay at the feet of this not just the holes in and what you guys are looking for but because i think there's a lot of misinformation but a lack of education how what, what do you think about that Oh, I, I think I think that the lack of enforcement or the lack of doing anything about election integrity up until now is is, is out of in part because of ignorance. Um, first and foremost, not necessarily of the general electorate, but I would actually lay it at the feet of the policymakers. Okay, in other words, state election law, state election law in the state of North Carolina is the purview of the North Carolina General Assembly. Now, listen, I am not criticizing the North Carolina General Assembly. I'm not. Um, I did not see a lot of the things. I did not forecast or anticipate some of the things that took place in 2020, nor did they. So there's no judgment here. But in fairness, if, if the state General Assembly is required, if they're the ones that are passing general um, election law, if you will, then I think it's in their first interest to protect that law when it's run roughshod over. I think they need to litigate it when, when necessary, which then leads us to an unaccountable runaway uh, judiciary which in many instances we have here in the state of North Carolina. The General Assembly did a great job, for instance, putting on the ballot, right, a constitutional amendment to guarantee photo voter ID. In that instance, the General Assembly did something, right? And the North Carolinians did something. 58% of the entire state said, yes, we want that. Only to have an unaccountable, uh, non-elected, right, um, court system tie it up and say, no, that's we're, we're not going to allow that to happen. So, I mean, I, I think part of our problem, too, is a runaway judiciary that's not accountable to the people that's basically legislating from the bench, which they should not do. So I think first and foremost, the policymakers need to litigate the right or, or put together the right laws and then defend them, litigate them if necessary. And then also we've got to do something with the judiciary. Right. I think that's where the problem lies right now. And, and primarily the judiciary, because they're the ones who are actually stopping a lot of these things from happening. And I'll, I'll go one step further. In North Carolina, we need a new governor, right? I mean, we flat out need a new governor because the state be. board of elections is under numeric control based on the appointments from the governor mm. who's in power. And so we need a new state board of elections as far as I'm concerned. Great fact to bring up. Hold up, Rob, before you do that, ladies and gentlemen, you're checking out Hal Weatherman. We are talking about election integrity and the electoral uh, education foundation stuff that we've got going on. Hal's doing across the state. I got to ask you this question, though, because you mentioned voter uh, photo ID required to vote. How much of the shenanigans can we shut down with just that simple requirement of a photo ID to vote? How like does that bump us up? 50% more secure, 75% more secure. How much more secure does you know, requiring photo ID make us? I mean, I, th I think it would do a lot. It's not going to solve everything, right? And Because, listen, if you go after fraud, if, you, if you're an election integrity group going after fraud, my first question would be, what kind of fraud do you want to go after? Do you want to go after ballot box stuffing, of voter impersonation, um, Provisional ballot fraud, transfer ballot fraud, same day voter registration fraud. You're going to have all different kinds, right? Photo ID, uh, voter photo ID would solve a lot of that. It absolutely would. Anything that involves a person walking across a threshold into a physical facility, right? Uh, so though any kind of uh, form of fraud that emanates from that relationship. This is why you see 
you know, our party, for instance, will make a huge concentrated effort to have poll observers, poll watchers, right? Those are eyes physically in the polling site, right? Photo ID massively cuts down the need for that, right? I'm not saying it, it doesn't eliminate it, but it does. Sure. But I, I do believe with mail-in balloting, which is what I think is the cause du jour right now, I think it's absolutely where you need to be paying your attention. If, you, if you're a partisan, think about this. Dan Forrest, I'll use Dan since I, you know, obviously I'm affiliated with him. So if Dan Forrest is the first Republican candidate in state history for governor to win early voting, which most people don't realize. Traditionally, Republican candidates for governor lose early voting and we lose it by about 300,000 votes. Then we make it up on election day by winning it by an overwhelming majority. Dan Forrest won early voting. Dan Forrest won election day two to one. So where did we lose, right? We lost mail-in balloting that went from three came in after. Well, they, they, they came in potentially up to nine days after the election, right? Which is insane. I th Growing up, right, election day was election day. I don't know if you remember, Ra. It was like election day was election day. That was it. There was no a week. I, I, when did that change? Because you remember that, Ra? Election yeah, it's evolved over the last 20 years, really, 25 years. Um, uh, our state election law here in North Carolina, by the way, our state constitution says there shall be a day afforded the people to vote. So according to our state constitution, there should be one day to vote. I'm a constitutionalist. I believe in that. I think every effort that we do to, quote, expand voting, to make voting easier, et cetera, et cetera. We actually cheapen the vote. Um, we cheapen it. We cheapen the meaning behind it. We cheapen mm. the sovereignty of it. Um, because there was a day where people would wait in line everywhere on that one day because it was their God-given, protected right to go vote, and we wanted them to go vote. And now you, know, you can vote early voting. You can vote absentee voting. You can... You can do same day voter registration, which is absolutely ripe with fraud because there's no time to verify who the person is, yeah. you know, and, and we're just getting further and further away from what our constitutional assignment was, which was basically you have a day to go vote and everybody did. And so I, I let, me, let, me, let me ask this quick question, Ali, in, in, in the vein of this, right? So how much of this do you think is, and, and I'm going to say that I'm a, I'm a firm believer in what I'm about to say. I'm on the side of it being, being true. How much, uh, and a lot, how much do you think is, is of this, what we're seeing is a push for the federal government to federalize the voting system and kind of bring it all under their, you know, under their jurisdiction. I, I'm saying it's like, hundred percent. It's like where to go with this, but what's your take on that? Or is that too far? Oh, no, it's not far. -fetched. I mean, HR one is what was being pushed in Congress to do exactly that. One hundred percent. I mean, listen, our forefathers wanted, first of all, the federal government's not supposed to be the end all be all. The sovereignty of a, of a state is what our forefathers envisioned that the states would be preeminent, the states would be, you know, supreme. When it when it comes to the federal government, that Congress, that Congress would be the most supreme of the three branches, that the, that the presidency would be an administrative branch to just administer the power of the purse that Congress had laid out. And then the courts would give an opinion, literally. That's why the Supreme Court, when they issue an opinion, it, it literally says in parchment up at the top, in the opinion of the court, in the opinion of the court, instead, we've created three co-equal branches and we've elevated the federal above the state. 
not what our forefathers intended. And, and so I certainly believe in, in the sovereignty of the state. H.R. 1, which was Nancy Pelosi's effort to federalize state election law, would be a disaster. It would, be an, it would codify mail-in balloting across the country, for instance, which is what they were trying to do. Um, and, I, you know, from a part of, as a partisan, you know, with my partisan cap on, I would say that would be death to the republic, that you would never elect, a, you'd never have a two-party rule system or three parties or whatever again. Whoever is in numeric control of the majority at that time that they pass that will run the table with everybody from the rest of the time. And I think most members, including Manchin, the Democrat, there are several Democrats that were like, hey, man, look, I didn't sign up for this. Like, yeah, this is a little too far. power grab that we, we won't come back from. Right. And so thankfully that's been held up and hopefully it will. Well, hopefully it'll be a, here a in New York, illegal immigrants have been given the right to vote in New York City. They've been given they're eligible to vote in New York City. So I mean it's a it's a you know what show up here. So I uh, I mean, hopefully with this Republican ticket that we got, we can kind of restore some balance here, or at least start to stall them out a little bit. And we got an amazing ticket here in New York. And we definitely could use more organizations that are pointing out the holes in the game. So, you know, yeah. I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Ali, what you got? I see you, I see you you did the look. All right. The look was because and what Hal just touched on about the sovereignty of an election and allowing Okay, how come we don't have a an election, electoral citizenship, something in school? How come kids aren't like go ask the average high school kid how their county works? They don't know who the county commissioners are, who the mayor of their like they know they might know who the mayor is, maybe right? But we're not taught the value of our citizenship, of our, like of how much that vote matters. How do we get that back in schools? Like, how do we get that back? Well, yeah, I mean, in part, it's gonna depend on where you send your kid to school, right? And, and this is why you're seeing an unbelievable, huge surge of people choosing homeschooling for their kids because they're not getting the values that are being taught or that they were taught that they grew up. Listen, I grew up public school and private school. Uh, you know, I, I lived, my family, my mom and dad were, um, above average, whatever of wealth. And so we had the, the, the best of both worlds. My family, you know, now that I'm a father with kids, we've done private school, we have done homeschool and we've done public school. They're all public right now. And we've certainly utilized charter schools as well. I mean, first of all, we have to have school choice. I mean, in answer, direct answer to your question, you put competition to the school systems, you make the schools compete against themselves and let the parents dictate where their kids go. And that's why you're seeing this huge exodus from traditional public schools until they right size the ship because the indoctrination camps that these schools have become is unreal we've you know i've seen y'all talk about crt before obviously that's going on we used to teach that america was exceptional american exceptionalism i believe in that i do not think there's a moral equivalency between america and other countries and i think we have put the will you know we've we've made ourselves subservient that our rights come from god and that is not the norm around the world. And because of that, we keep our proper place in the world. And uh, the school systems are abandoning that. And I, I think it's because we, we've lost the culture war. We've lost it, you know. And you're not going to solve a lot of this politically. I always tell people, you know, politics is downstream from culture. It's not upstream from culture. By the time it rises to the attention of the politics, the, 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 the river is polluted, right? We've lost the cultural war. And that cultural war was fought classroom to classroom. And it has been for decades now. I mean, this is not a new phenomenon now. It's just the difference is 
all those kids that came out through 40 generate 40 years or four consecutive generations of liberal indoctrinating public schools are now ruling the place and they have numeric control in many instances and so yeah people are waking up the mama bears are waking up right and and, and i hope it's not too late but first and foremost we need to put school choice and if you don't have it in your area practice it but you know don't be afraid of homeschooling your kids you have to no, get your kids right. if they're not teaching what you don't like then you have to speak up and you have to tell them. I'm telling you, you know, we, we have two kids, one in a traditional public school now, and then two in a public charter school. We love them both. We're having a good experience. But I'm the first one. You can ask my school board member. He lives right down the street from me. I will call him if I don't like it. You know, I will call him. I lectured him about the mask situation where I'm like, get my kid out of a mask. This is why we moved out west where we would be with real people again. Right. Right. Uh, and um I want them out of the mask, you know? And I said, I love you, brother. <laughs> man, I up, man, I love you. But you vote for that mask thing again. Mm-mm. No. So we're saying when it comes to that, Ali, I think what it sounds like, if I could, is like, let's let's put some free market concepts back in education. Let them compete. Let them, let them, let parents decide, right? Because we homeschool, we're homeschool parents, right? because we don't like what's going on down there because honestly and and it might sound i don't know stuck up or something but i'm concerned about how parents are teaching like what values parents are teaching their kids to the point where right ali you wouldn't even let your kids get on a school bus for years because i'm just i'm just gonna drive you to school because that what happens in that 14 minute ride could change the direction of your kid's life if that's every day that's uh, you know a half an hour with other kids to do god knows what the bus driver only wants to drive the route and drop them off you know what i mean so so are we saying put those free market ideals back there and and I don't know if privatized education would be the right how about word. how about this how about this you attack you detach all of the regulations from the federal government you want to cut a check to help the states pay for ex education cut the check the states want to provide right. settlements cut the check but there shouldn't be all of these hoops and the, the federal government shouldn't be dictating curriculum and, and this right. just shouldn't i think uh i think part now this is me getting personal i may be extreme in this regard but i think that all education should be county-based. I think the state should play as little role. The Fed should play a little role. The teachers, the, the parents, and the school board members that come from these communities know what their regions, know what their industries are, know what their local workforce requirements are. In my opinion, how these that's just stuff should be. All right, listen, I totally agree. Possible. I I don't have any dis. I don't think that the I think the the U.S. Department of Education should be abolished. I, th there's absolutely no purpose for it. You could block grant the money. Block grant meant the money means fine. Keep whatever you want to spend on it from a federal standpoint. Divide it up according to a formula. Send it to all 50 states and let them spend it. And then I, I think the state should be a conduit for money down to the county level. I totally agree. I, the county the rubber hits the road at home, uh, and people will keep their low. I know my school board members. Like I said, one of them's my neighbor. Right. I don't know anybody at the Department of Education in Washington, nor do they care about me or my kid. Right. But my school board member down the street knows my kid. He actually teaches two of my kids. Right. So I would rather have that accountability here local. And that's what our forefathers wanted. They never envisioned what we're looking at today. Our forefathers what? never envisioned a federal government that's involved in absolutely every aspect of our life. They didn't envision that. Not and shame on us for not taking it back. Shame on us for letting it incrementally sneak up on us because that's what it's done. 
It's people appeasing the system and appeasing it and appeasing it until the system now comes back and pokes you in the eye. Right. And then it's too big. You can't do anything with it. And right. so, you know, I, I firmly believe, and this is why I was so adamant working, you know, for Dan Forrest, I firmly believe that the day is going to come in this country where the only thing that's going to stop the overreach of the federal government is an amazingly strong governor. And, and I really think the power is with the governorships. And um, and you're already seeing that. Look at the difference between a Ron DeSantis, Florida, and a Roy Cooper, North Carolina. And then look at the protection of civil liberties in Florida versus North Carolina. And look at the exodus of people. It is amazing how many people are moving to Florida now. My, listen, my wife, it was everything I could do when, when we decided to move on, right? We decided to move out west, but the first thought was to move down to Florida or down to Texas, right? I, I did a stint in Texas and I loved it, but my wife was like, let's go to Florida because that's where freedom is. And there are, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people doing that. Right. Because they can look what's going to happen in the future of this country and they can realize there's going to come a time, probably sooner than later, that but for a strong governor fighting back against a tyrannical government, federal government, you know, all bets are off. Right? And it, it's just kind of scary the world we live in now. But people are choosing freedom and they're speaking up and thank God for them for doing so. Right on. Ladies and gentlemen, right around the 36-minute mark, we are kicking it with our homie, Hal Weatherman. We are talking about the Electoral Education Foundation and the things he's got going on. As always, we really appreciate everybody watching from across the country, across the state of North Carolina, across New York, Virginia, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, and Mississippi. We really appreciate everybody. Um, shout out to Scott and Zinger from the Two Americas podcast. Y'all know, come back every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Check out Two Americas. Um, as we kind of get on the tail end of things here, Hal, I kind of, you, you touched on something um, earlier about why you got into, you know, you saw what was happening. You wanted to do something after the election. So what what's coming up for the Electoral Education Foundation? What do you guys got coming up in the future? So folks know how to support you and, and get you some. Yeah, well, thank you. So let me just tell you a little bit. Of, like, here's what we do. Right. If people want to know what we do and I'm going to try to oversimplify this because election integrity is hard to talk about. But here's what we do. Every time the North Carolina Board of Elections updates the voter file in the state of North Carolina, every time when they update the file, we take a digital screen grab of that file and we archive it. And right now they update the, the North Carolina voter file every Saturday morning at 5 a.m. As we get closer to traditional election season, they will actually update it uh, every 24 hours. Regardless, every time they update the file, we take that update and we archive it. So we have last Saturday's file, the Saturday before, the Saturday before, the Saturday before. Uh, our vice president of research who I hired to direct our research was already doing this. His name is Major Dave Getz. Um, he was already doing this and has five years worth of archive data. And so we have all these archive files. We take the archive files, we hook it up to a supercomputer, think SQL Server. We develop algorithms where necessary. We run those algorithms through all the archive files. We throw out all the extraneous, innocuous movements, and we isolate the movements with the highest correlation to voter fraud, with the highest correlation to voter fraud, and then we publish our results. When I say publish, we send our findings to the Board of Elections. We send our findings to all 100 county boards of elections. We send our findings to the county commission chairman of all 100 counties. We send it to the Capitol Press Corps and we send it to the General Election Oversight Committee in the General Assembly, Republican and Democrat, so that they know these are the vulnerability points that we see. 
These are the findings that we see, the movements we see in the system that uh, have a high correlation to fraud. And that's our entire MO. That is actually all we do. And um, some voter integrity groups say that's it. And I'm like, brother, that's that is it, because that is where it needs to be. All election. Think about this, regardless of what kind of fraud is committed. If fraud is committed, something will move correspondingly in the file. So why aren't we looking for the movements? If I'm looking for the movements that lead to fraud, then theoretically, I'm looking for all kinds of fraud. If I'm looking for fraud in in its in and of itself, then my next question is, what kind of fraud are you looking for? Same day voter registration fraud, transfer ballot fraud, uh, absentee ballot fraud, voter impersonation, ballot box harvesting, ballot box stuffing, right? There takes time and money and expertise to investigate all of those. But all of those, if something happens, movement happens in the file. And so we track the movements. That's the difference between us and other election integrity groups is our methodology starts on the back end, starts at a completely different starting place. I personally think it's a superior place to start. And I, again, I'm basing my involvement on this on a 27 year career of running campaigns in this state. And I'm looking for movements that I find troubling. And we found some already. Wow. So it's kind of complicated. Websites up there on the screen, ladies and gentlemen, the Electoral Education Foundation. Make sure if you're and this is are you guys just operating in North Carolina right now? Are you looking at our so, state? So we're only North Carolina right now, and we are on file with the Secretary of State of North Carolina. Uh, you can find us electoraleducationfoundation.com as you're showing there. We're also on all social media platforms. So we're Facebook, Twitter, Telegram, Instagram, uh, Truth Social soon. Um and, and so, but yeah, we're North Carolina right now. We have applied for 501c3 status. We're awaiting our letter of determination uh, from the IRS to be official in that regard. But we're already ap operating as a C3 in the sense that we have a lot of people that give to us. We take personal money. We also take corporate money. We've raised about $300,000 so far just to get it up and operational. I received no compensation from this. This is a labor of love uh, for me. Um, as a federal employee, I'm not allowed to be compensated from it. And I don't. And so, uh, but yeah, we're a donation supported entity. And again, you can find us electoraleducationfoundation.com. Excellent. So there is a tradition of sorts around these parts, how first time guest on the show. So now you will have, and Ra, I hope you've been taking notes if you're ready for this. We're going to go through a quick lightning round, one word responses uh, where you can do them. This will be very lightning round and ride. You can kick it off whenever you're ready. No, I didn't know we was doing one, one, one. You didn't explain that right. Okay. I messed it up. I always mess it up. So unmess it up. Okay. Lightning round. Here's where we go. We're going to give you some things that require one word. Some things are going to require more than one word. Either right. way, give the honest answer as quickly as you can. You ready? Best place to get barbecue in the state of North Carolina. Mmm. Parker's. Go. All right. Uh, Ford or Chevy? Ford. F-150 to be exact. Okay. Go ahead, Ali. All right. All right. You're, you're, you're in a bar. You are going to get into a physical altercation. There's no talking your way out of it. There's, there's no running away. You're going to get into a physical altercation. Who do you want to have with you? Dan Forrest or Roy Cooper? Uh, I'm going to say Roy Cooper. 
Because I think the odds of I think the odds of the guy fighting me in a bar that Roy Cooper shut down for two years, he's probably going to go after Roy and not me. <laughs> Mental mojo on that one, man. Mental yeah. mojo. Got it. Yeah, that was all right. All right. Yeah. All right. Chuck Norris or Van Damme? Oh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Bob, yeah. I, I know. Listen, that's going to be sacrilegious for some people. Whoa. But I actually watched a Jean-Claude Van Damme blood sport or whatever it was called the other day. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to mess with this dude. So I'm going to go with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Whoa. Right, hey, hey, if you really want to go old school, Steven Seagal would kick both the butts. Sorry, that's how I roll. I almost went with Norris versus Seagal, but I would go with Seagal then 100. Okay, all right, okay, all right. yeah, go ahead, Ali. All right, favorite first uh, lady of all time, favorite first lady. Mm -hmm. That we said, um, mm. I guess I'll go with, um, I, I guess Miss Bush, uh, uh, George W., Laura Bush. I'll go with Laura Bush. I met her one time. I got to talk to her before she was first lady. Really? She was very nice. Now, this is interesting. I know it's lightning around all that. But I met, her, I met her when she was the first lady of Texas. Her husband was not the nominee yet, but it was clear he was going to be the nominee. And I went up to him at an event and said something to him, and he said, um, Go back and tell my wife what you just told me. And, he, and when I went back, I, I know I'm oversimplifying this. He, uh, my, my old boss, Sue Myrick, had breast cancer back then. And he sent me back to talk to his wife. And he, I said, your husband wanted me to come talk to you about my boss, Sue Myrick. She said, oh, we've been praying for her at a Bible study. And uh, so I, 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 that always stuck with me. I'm like, really? Y'all are praying in Texas for Sue Myrick? And he, she was like, oh, yeah, by name. And that's why he, he knew that. And that's why he sent me back to talk to his wife about that thing. I just thought that was really cool. So I'll, I'll go with, I'll go with uh, Laura Bush. All right. All right. You got one more, Ali? You got one more? Yeah, I got, I got one more. Okay. Well, I have, I, I have one more, but I'm. Okay, I'm go, go with yours. Let me see if you do what I think. We'll make mine the last one because it's a three-part question. Stuck on the desert island. What album do you bring? Right? The album, the book, and what's the, the food? What's the food group you got to have? You, it's only these three things. This is forever now. This is the only album you're going to have. This is the only food group you're going to have. This is the only... Let's not do book. Let's do DVD. For some magical purposes, you got a DVD player. You're stuck with a DVD. It's just one. What are those three things? So you got an album, a DVD, and a food. Forever. What do you got? You gotta that is hard. Um... Well, I know you took book away, but if we did book, I'd do Bible, right? Okay. So, okay, we can we can substitute book. And does not live, live by bread alone. So if I'm on an island and I've got that, then I can live, right? So right. I need a Bible. Uh, DVD, I'm probably going to go with, um, oh, I'm an old school movie fanatic. But, I, you know, I'll actually go, I love Forrest Gump. I'll go with Forrest Gump. Um, if, if I've got to do uh, food, I'm probably going to say... Oh, that's a hard one. Maybe, maybe, maybe Oreo cookies. I'm kind of on an Oreo cookies these days. And then album. I don't know anything by ELO or uh, Super Tramp. I'm 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 a little old school in that sense. So I'd nice. probably go Super Tramp right now. Super nice. Tramp. Hey, so nice, ladies and gentlemen. We've been kicking it with Hal Weatherman from the Electoral Education Foundation. You can find them online, everywhere, social media. Everything, um, 
Facebook, Instagram, Gitter, Twitter, all that good stuff. Websites on your screen. You did hear the brother say that they are trying to keep our elections secure and keep us in the know about things happening. So make sure you get out, support what is going on with Hal Weatherman and the Electoral Education Foundation. As always, Hal, we like to tell folks that come on the show, time is the one thing you will not get more of than this life. So we are eternally grateful for you spending an hour of your life with us here on The Urban Conservative. We'd obviously love to have you back as we get closer to Election Day here in North Carolina. Keep us in the know about things that are happening. Um, Again, ladies and gentlemen, next Monday, we'll be right here back at 8 p.m. on The Urban Conservative Podcast. Wednesday night, check out To America. Shouts out to Scott and Zynga. We've been kicking it once again with Hal Weatherman. We will see you guys next Monday night, 8 p.m., right here on the Urban Conservative Podcast. Until next time, peace, everybody.